Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In our podcast series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore their journey as well as share practical insight to build successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peignot, Director ISV Business at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Rafi Epstein, who is a founder and CEO of Stratovar. Stratovar is a SaaS contract and renewal management company based in Tel Aviv, which is where Rafi joined us from today. So hi, Rafi. How are you? I'm doing very well. A hot day here. Hope to be uh, not uh, too uh, hot questions. Not to add to the... Well, uh... we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> it's not super hot here today in the UK. We've had our sun and we have our summer. You know, in the UK, if you blink, you miss the summer. So it's not like you in Israel. So I read somewhere that the inspiration for Stratovar started after you attended Dreamforce. So we often talk about Dreamforce and how great it is. And it is. But, you know, if you had one thing you would change about Dreamforce, what would that be? Well, you know, I've... Uh... For, for 14 years, I've lived in, uh, in the U.S. in Silicon Valley, very close to San Francisco. So I had the pleasure of uh, visiting personally on several occasions. And uh, it was always amazing. I was at the time the founder and CEO of another company called Netformix, which uh, at the time was still a desktop application. You remember, we're talking about 20, 25 years ago. But at some point, it became too huge, too big. Uh, I remember that uh, I think, you know, Salesforce uh, rented the sailboats, some ships uh, to host people. And that is usually a sign where it's, you know, too big and too diversified. And it's very difficult to to do business, you know, specific business. It may be a time to maybe split it uh, into smaller, more vertical directions. But, you know, who I am to give advice to the number one marketing company in the world. (laughs) Actually, we love to listen to our customer feedback, actually. So we love that. Actually, a new wish may come true this year uh, in a sense that we've just launched a new format about Dreamforce, which will come much closer to people. So you see, you predicted the future, Rafi, already without knowing it. So that's fantastic. You mentioned you started... um, a little while back, <laughs> your career. And innovation is always something difficult to try to keep pace with. So what's your sort of personal learning, personal development tricks to try to keep pace with innovation? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really huge challenge. I remember when I started my business career, we had fax machines, right, for, for legal and specification, cooperation. That was extremely slow, right? And look... After so many years, I think when I was a customer number nine of a company called Webex that was later acquired by Cisco, Webex is the first Zoom, right? Before there was Zoom and go to meeting and others. And at that point, things really turned out to run very, very quickly in terms of communication, right? Now, at the same time, the web technology started to evolve and I had no idea what it was. Personally, I, I couldn't understand it. I, I assumed that others had similar challenges as well. So the trick is uh, continuous learning. I mean, you have to keep educating yourself about what's going on. Even if you're an executive, you still need to understand the underlying uh, technology and and trends, uh, at least in your uh, zip code, right? In your neighborhood. I'm not such an expert in, I don't know, microprocessor technologies, right? I can enjoy the speed and power saving and so on. But definitely uh, when we sold our previous company, when I really spent most of the time in... in, um, management position as, a, as an executive, as the CEO, and so on, the you know, web was uh, really taking off. 
and I had to restart. I had like a, I had no idea what it was, and I just took some books and courses and training, and and I educated myself of what that means and what uh, SaaS means and how it works and what's a you know SaaS application. And you have to redo it every few years. You don't have a choice if you want to to understand what's going on. And I encourage everybody to do the same. I mean, whether you are a project manager, I mean, if you are in technology, you have to do it anyways. But if you are you know, in the perimeter, you still have to do it in order to stay relevant, in my opinion. And how, how do you do that? Because I guess it's easy to get, you know, every day, you know, we get inundated with things to do. And, you know, sometimes personal development and investment in oneself is always a tricky one. Do you have any tricks about, I don't know, do you save an hour every day, every Friday to read a book? Do you, I mean, you read all the people like, you know, Obama and Bill Gates, they all have like different techniques. What's your technique to try to save that time for you? For me, I was a bit lucky because I just took some time off and I had uh, a lot of free time that I could devote to to learning the the new generation, right? All the web technology and, and, and everything. So that was my first big big investment in in um, knowledge or in uh, acquiring uh, knowledge about new technologies. But since then, uh, I kept uh, learning, and and uh, every time, and you know, I don't have like a predefined. Uh, number of hours or, or any time slot, but uh, I do find myself from time to time just, uh, you know, take a specific subject, even in Salesforce, right? So I start when I started, Salesforce had Visual Force pages, as an example. At some point, uh, Lightning Experience was introduced, right? And uh, I was really annoyed because I couldn't understand what it was. At some point, I just took some time off, you know, a day or so, and started reading everything there is to read about it in order to fully understand it. Not to the level that I can program, but to the level of understanding what it was. And it's not a huge jump, right? I mean, it's but very, very different than, than the previous uh, technology. I think you have to just keep doing that, uh, whether you do it... Uh, uh, every Friday at uh, 9 a.m. or you do it from time to time or you just take a few days off and you dedicate some time. You just have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And and thinking back about, you know, you talk about learning habits. So what other habits have you kind of counted the most on throughout your career? Um, <laughs> first of all, um, the, the importance of listening. You know, we have two ears, one mouth. So God wanted to tell us something. So try to listen as much as possible. But it's not just listening to the words. It's to, to interpret what you hear. And, and I take the pessimistic way, unfortunately. And, and unfortunately, I'm right. In other words, you know, when you're talking to customers and they tell you stories or, or you know, tell you things maybe you'd like to hear, it's very important to understand what they really mean. So what did you really mean by saying that or by writing this or by writing that? Okay, so being able to ask questions, always dig deeper, at least one more level than what you, you that's what I'm trying to explain to all my employees when they talk to customers and they, you know, engage and come back with answers and say, you have to be more thorough and, and drive deeper, even if you think you understand what the customer is. So don't assume too much. The other thing is uh, that I'm trying to you know, respect myself and, and kind of educate my, my team is about what I call extreme ownership. You know, if you own something, you have to own it till the end. I mean, you can't just do your work and go home. If this is your attitude, we talked about attitude earlier, right? If this is your attitude, it probably will not work. It, it probably will not last. So you have to really own things and see them through. 
And last but not least, as a manager, myself and, and others, you know, it's very difficult when you go from a small company and start growing. And as a small company, you're doing everything, almost everything yourself, right? Or there are two people, three people, but then you need to learn how to delegate. But you can't totally delegate without any control because the quality of the, the product or the service uh, may not match your expectations. What's the quality? Is the customer happy? You have to keep track of those parameters all the time in order to, to make sure that you can sleep quietly at night, right? We support uh, customers today. We support customers 24 by 7. I'm not awake 24 by 7. I need to trust my team and I need to know that they know that they need to own a problem until it is resolved or escalated and so on. And it's a long journey, but at the end, when you get there, you have a very a highly operational machine. And, and that's, a, that's a success in my opinion. No, that, that's interesting because you talk about being curious, being accountable and, and relying on feedback. So that's what you do. How, how do you enable your team to reflect what you want? What's your sort of trick in, in building great teams? I think that, uh, first of all, you have to make sure that any new team member has proper onboarding. They understand the company, they understand the vision, they understand the product, they understand, you know, if they're in marketing, they understand the marketing and so on. You have to make sure. And again, you have to make sure. How do you make sure? You have to let them learn, help them educate and, and close the loop and make sure that uh, they, they reach where they need to be. The trick, I think, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis is to delegate. Always allow the uh, team members to express their creativity and their uh, ability to solve problems and allow them to make mistakes. We respect mistakes, but fail fast, understand the mistake, fix it and come back and maybe do another mistake. Don't repeat it twice because that will be stupid, right? But the culture of, you know, do the best you can, open, very open door policy, talk to whoever you need to talk to, me or anybody else, fail fast if you have to fail, admit you failed, find the reason, analyze it, go back on track, you know, go back to, to ride the horse and uh, move on. So you launched uh, several other successful startups which were later sold to larger company. So if you think about that journey, what would you say is the key to a successful exit strategy? The key to a successful exit strategy is not to have one, okay? I think that uh, companies should focus on the business and the business uh, meaning, uh, you know, create uh, a product that makes a difference that uh, solves real problems that customers are willing to pay for, uh, whether it's you know, B2B or B2C, it doesn't matter. As long as you are successful, at some point, you may be an interesting target for an acquisition. Uh, I am familiar during, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy, I'm having a birthday on, on Saturday. Uh, I've been you know, working in the high-tech industry for more than 40 years, 45 probably. I did see several companies that were designed from you know, day one to be acquired, but it's a very risky approach, in my opinion, because usually there are several companies trying to be acquired and, and only one is, and then you, you're left without any success. So my advice, focus on the business, create successful business, and the exit will come one way or another at some point. And even if not, you, you can still survive and you know continue your journey as a, as a standalone company which is not necessarily a bad thing no it's interesting because um actually um i think your categories as well <laughs> and uh it's definitely really funny that actually it's it's a really good strategy not to have an exit strategy and focus on today and not necessarily tomorrow you've um 
you know, you've raised quite a lot of sort of funds, you know, and you've had a lot of experience with uh, venture founding. What was that experience like? This is a Catholic marriage, right? I mean, you, you bring an investor on board and you're there uh, until death do you part. And that can mean, you know, positive, you know, going to heaven or going to hell, right? Bringing the right investors on board is, is very tough. The interests are not usually aligned, not between investors sometimes, and definitely not between investors and founders and management. Uh, some investors may push for an early exit. Uh, some investors would push for long term. So the balancing act between the needs, everybody wants to win, but everybody has a different meaning of what winning is. In our last company, in Stratavar, we made a conscious decision not to bring investors on board and to use our experience and contacts to build a company from the ground up based on revenue from customers and not money from investors, which forces you to be very focused, very market attuned and not waste anything on, on anything. Interesting decision, interesting choice. But thinking back, I guess, about your previous journey, when you decided to have venture funds, how did you select them? You talk about finding the right balance and how, how did you know you were picking the right one or was it a bit of an act of faith, you know, continuing on the Catholic theme here? Yeah, so um, at the time, it was, I think, 1995, I think in Israel, we had five investors. So within two days, I visited them all. Uh, it was very easy, at least in Israel. And uh, one of them, at some point, became very interested. And we started a series of sessions uh, and, and interrogations and business review for several months. And we became very closely, in terms of the, the, the trust and the understanding of what is expected on each side. It's a journey that nobody can afford today. I don't think it happens today. I think decisions are made very fast and, and nobody does such a deep diving. That was the first investor, the seed investor. Uh, later on, you know, in round, round A, we had some investors that were headed, some of them were headed by people I personally knew from my previous engagement in the Israeli uh, army. So again, personal acquaintance with the major key player was a fundamental decision or fundamental part of the decision. And at some point when we really hit a rough spot during the you know, 2000 uh, disaster and, and market uh, crash, that proved to be the same that most of the investors st stuck up with the company and supported it and it turned out to be a good investor. Today, I think it's way more difficult. Things are moving much faster. There is no time almost. There is competition between investors. It's very hard to tell, both for investors and entrepreneurs, that there is a lot of, uh, as you call it, draw of luck. I mean, you don't know. And, and you find out only when it's too late. And you hope for the best, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's the act of faith we were talking about just now. So, so you talk about looking for the right investors, which is all about people, really. And I guess all over your many years of experience, you've built sort of many great teams. So can you think back about what you were looking for when you were building great teams? I think, you know, the, the team is the number one factor in the success. And this is something also investors will probably agree on that because, you know, a great team can, can start with the wrong product, realize it's the wrong product, and then redesign or, you know, um, uh, redo the whole uh, thinking. And then the question is, how do you hire? My preference is hire based on potential and attitude rather than experience and uh, an impressive resume. I always prefer somebody with the right attitude, with the passion to, to learn 
an ability to learn, of course, rather than have somebody who has a lot of experience and is, is, uh, may find it very difficult to learn new things. The whole industry, the whole environment, the tools, the, the, everything changes so fast that uh, unless you have the ability to, to learn very quickly, you're, you're dead. So attitude and potential uh, is more important to me and that uh, proved to be a pretty good uh, parameter in hiring. Did you have a magic formula to assess that or you know, did you develop it over the years? When you interview the people and when you, you talk to their uh, references, and in Israel it's a little bit easier because references do tell you the truth usually, whether you like it or not. In the U.S., I found it very difficult to use references, by the way, because everybody is afraid of uh, a lawsuit, right? <laughs> so you get very little. I, at some point, I gave up on reference checks in, in the U.S. I spent there 14 years running uh, my previous company. I actually gave up. So it was really uh, sessions, meetings, uh, meeting during the interviews, meeting outside the company for you know beer or dinner. And only that way we could find uh, uh, that there is a good match. By the way, the match has to be two-way. It's a two-way street, absolutely. And you, you can find a great candidate that doesn't like the company or, or vice versa, and it won't work. So very important to make sure that whoever uh, you plan to bring on board is, is indeed uh, eager to come on board as well. Yeah, I mean, culture is such, a, such an important piece. To your point, you can try to assess uh, competencies and skills, but try to assess culture is pretty hard. So outside of finding that sort of culture fit, did you experience any other challenge in when it comes to recruitment? I mean, you touch upon the, the references. Were there any other things that you wish you knew before you started? Yes, absolutely. I think the issue of cultural differences is, is amazing and you, you have to be aware of that. For example, today we have, uh, you know, People in Israel, of course, we have a team in India, we have a team in the Ukraine, we have um, the US and so on. Very, very different. So what we did, uh, for example, is when we, we interview, for example, in India, we use the local partners to gauge the cultural match because we are unable to do that. When it comes to doing business, there are lots of other differences, right? I mean, doing business in the US is different than doing business in South America, Brazil, or, or you know Costa Rica, you have to really, really be attentive and uh, never assume anything. I mean, <laughs> you can't even assume what the meaning of interesting is. You know, when an American tells you, yes, it's very interesting, you know that <laughs> they think it's rubbish and they're not going to call you back, right? You know, you, you need to listen, but you also need to be very attentive to, to actions and to Know, what is really going on and, and again it's uh, it's challenging but you know you learn how to do it uh, you don't have a choice and thinking back about Stratovar and how had to build a, a team did you experience some issues you know in, in finding the right sort of people the right sort of skills or your company is is pretty technical as such and i think did you sort of struggle to find the right sort of match of of people that's our number one struggle today and has always been number one struggle. First of all, uh, as you said, we're a small company and you, you try to attract the best talent. So you, you compete against uh, relatively large companies with more resources. So you have to play differently. That's uh, being a small company, you know, small fish in a big pond. In the Salesforce arena, and especially in Israel and other places, uh, there is a shortage of uh, talent no matter how you look at it. I'm talking about uh, at least what we are looking for, which is uh, developers and experienced developers, uh, technical architects, uh, business analysts. I would say that today our number one 
challenge or our number one uh, constraint is getting uh, enough of the right talent on board and you don't want to compromise on the quality as we discussed earlier. So today it is a big challenge. I know that Salesforce is investing a lot in, in helping the industry train and, and, and educate and so on. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's not enough. The, the demand is much higher than the supply. And it is a major issue. It, it is an issue, I think, for most companies these days. And I think, you know, this is why we're investing a lot of time in, in sort of also changing the perception, I guess, of the fact that for some of the more technical job you just mentioned, right? We're trying to sort of break the stereotype, maybe, you know, I guess that's probably the better way of calling it in terms of, you know, who would be a, a great fit for that. I've got a question for you. So you spent like 14 years in the Silicon Valley and then you moved back to, to Israel. So tell me about probably the funniest story you had about the, the cultural difference between Israel and the US. I like to ask him some question around that because I always find it quite fascinating. Okay. Uh, when I first went to the bank, you know, I, I wired a seven-figure number from our uh, company here in Israel to the U.S. as a subsidiary. So I, I was a client with a million-dollar cash in the bank, and I asked for a credit card. Do you go to the bank in Israel, you just, you know, you, you, you just turn 16, they give you a credit card, right? You go to the U.S., you can't get a credit card. So why can't I get, you don't have credit history. So the, okay, how do I establish credit history? By using your credit card. But I don't have a credit card, and I was in a loop with the vice president of the bank, of the branch, for half an hour, not being able to get a credit card. Because I just have a million dollars in the bank, but no ability to get a credit card. Because they think about credit, for example, is something that is 100% defined by your history. So if you had good history, you'll have brilliant future. But you can't get a credit card. So, you know, you, you, you kind of, in a whole different system than what you are used to, in the US. So, you know, one day I walked into a um, T-Mobile, into the wireless carrier, right? And the lady asked me, are you a customer of ours? I said, yes. What's your phone number? And the phone number, oh, I see you're paying $100 a month. I have a great offer for you. We can reduce it to $50 uh, for unlimited minutes. So instead of paying $100 for 3,000 minutes, you'll pay 50 for unlimited. As an Israeli, I didn't believe her. You're trying to screw me somewhere. You know, our, our culture is, it, it can't be that your supplier is doing something good for you. That was the culture. That's the culture in Israel, even today, right? What's wrong? I mean, something doesn't add up. And it turned out that this is really true. They are, they are reducing prices and they are proactively encouraging users to take the lower end. And I couldn't believe it. It was against my culture, in the, against the Israeli culture. So those are, you know, small anecdotes, right? But, but they tell a story, I think, that you really need to, to try to understand the point of view of the other side more, more than try to match it to your point of view. And that's, that's a real life lesson. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's all about putting it, each other in sort of in shows us sort of shoes, isn't it? And sort of, uh, re, you know, remain open, you know, and trust. Because at the end of the day, you know, we run a, a people business, you know, whatever business you run, right? It's about the ability to make meaningful relationship with people. And I think uh, a lot of that is listening and trust, which is definitely some of our core values here. So, um, you know, you talked about being curious, being accountable, the feedback loop, and I guess um, allow people to fail. You know, what would be, I suppose, the last one piece of advice you would give to people that were sort of considering becoming an entrepreneur? First of all, be ready to suffer. You're going to work harder, you're going to earn less, and you have to be very modest. Don't expect any, you know, fast result, usually, okay? 
you know, the famous saying, it took us 10 years to have an overnight success, right? So in most cases, it is correct. We do read about crazy successes that are almost overnight, but this is the exception, not the rule. In terms of uh, what they do, you know, there are many different areas of entrepreneurship, but I think in all, at the end, you have something you want to sell, whether it's a product or a service. You need to really focus on the product and on the market fit. So you have a great product. Who thinks it's really great? You, your mother, your, your, your parents, your children, or the market? And what is the proof? It's very easy to be misled by the market that you have a great product. If somebody is paying you, then it's great. If somebody is just telling you it's great, it's not great, okay? And the, 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 maybe the last advice is about the market size. Oftentimes, I think uh, entrepreneurs miscalculate the market. It's very easy to say, I'm going to, to sell it to one-tenth of the Chinese market. But really, I mean, analyzing the market bottom up, understanding really who is the customer. So uh, either you go into a huge market or, or you have a very deep technology, but you have to really understand how the customer is going to buy and, and why and have an early proof of that before you, you, know, you invest a lot of uh, your time and investors money. And that's very difficult to do because it's easier to be in the lab and say, everybody's going to like my product, right? So get this, uh, some call it social proof, I call it market proof. Very early on, it's critical in, in building the company, in raising a VC, you know, venture capital, if you like, or, or getting more customers. In any format, this is the most critical, uh, I think, aspect of a new company. That's interesting. You sounded like, you sound like a hard journey when I listen to you. I'm sure you have some sort of fun things you do. So, you know, I guess final thought you know, is sort of having fun also part of the journey? Of course. I mean, suffer was just, you know, uh, half a joke. I mean, <laughs> you have to love what you do. You have to have passion. And at the end, if you do what you love, it, it almost doesn't count as uh, work, right? So I think it's critical for you to love, to believe in, in, in the solution, in the, you know, in the product, in the service that you come up with, uh, you can't do, uh, you know, half a job there. It has to be a complete dedication. Otherwise, it won't, uh, uh, it won't succeed. And when you do that, I think you're having a lot of fun. Rafi, thank you so much for chatting with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode and check out season one and two in all the usual places where you can get your podcast from. I will be back soon for another episode of Trailblazing Entrepreneurs. Until then, goodbye.